Hey, everyone. Today's guest is singer, songwriter, and actor Ben Platt. From his roles in Pitch Perfect and Dear Evan Hansen to being on the Time 100 list of most influential people in the world, you'll soon know why I was so excited to meet Ben. Later in the episode, April and I talk with a young woman who can't decide whether to marry or break up with her long-distance boyfriend. I really want to thank everyone for their openness and sharing these stories. If you have a question and would like some unqualified and qualified advice, please look for the link at unqualified.com. Now, here he is, Ben Platt. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Ben, are you in Los Angeles? I am. I'm in LA. I'm in my house in Los Feliz. Okay. I'm a little nervous that you're going to hate my first question because I'm sure you've answered it hundreds of times. So you (laughs) created this amazing character, which then must have taken over your life. You were Evan Hansen day after day for years, and then you made the film. What was that journey like? (laughs) <laughs> just to start off something light. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's a great question. I mean, obviously, I had two very disparate experiences with it. The stage production being the more kind of monstrous of the two. I think in terms of the development of it, the fact that I got to create the character like from scratch and be involved in all of the kind of beginning readings and workshops and the um, out-of-town production and the off-Broadway production, I had time to kind of grow into it and allow it to kind of seep into me, unlike anything I've done before, only because I've only ever entered things that were very much preconceived for me. And so I think that kind of being on the ground floor and like building him internally helped that to feel a little less scary. And I think in terms of the sort of HO week sustainability of having sort of an emotional roller coaster like that, It was a combination. I think there were some shows where it became like muscle memory and like sort of instinctual. And there are other shows where I was feeling kind of less inspired or feeling, you know, the kind of wear and tear of having done it for so long and having to pull on more kind of personal things. And those shows are obviously the more difficult ones because I think in an ideal world, you could be invested enough in the piece and in the character and on the ride enough that once you arrive at that time where you're needing to, you know, expel all this emotion, it's a very kind of natural progression. And being in a musical makes that even easier because there's beautiful orchestration and you get to allow the fact that there's this gorgeous score to kind of help you arrive there and sort of like empty you out into this into the right spot. But again, there are always those shows where try as you might, by virtue of doing it, you know, hundreds of times, there will always be shows where you're having to really kind of pull it out of yourself manually and pull on things in your own life. So I certainly had once a week at least where I was having to kind of take the less healthy route. And I think, you know, I don't know that I would ever be able to sort of do that again. I think it was a very special situation, obviously. It was sort of my dream in all respects to do an original piece and create a character and be on Broadway and all of that. And the story is very uniquely worthy of that kind of self-flagellation, I guess, um, because it's so powerful, I think, particularly for young people. And I really felt that responsibility and more and more as the show continued. And 
you know, the fan base kind of grew and the reaction was so visceral and so emotional that it really fell upon me to deliver that each time. And that became a really integral part of why the show was powerful. And so I think I was definitely willing to go out on that limb. But I think, you know, not being 23, 24 anymore. And, you know, I don't know that I could ask that of myself again. I mean, should I be so lucky to find another piece of material that is that kind of vital and and, and moving? But it was a day-to-day thing. I think I never really had like a surefire, like this is exactly how I'm going to get there answer for the stage production. And then in the film, since it wasn't having to be sustainable, it wasn't something I had to recreate over and over again. I could just attack each piece once and then kind of leave it behind. I was able to kind of take more risks, I think, emotionally and really take myself to certain places with, you know, my own sense memory or with music or with, you know, whatever kind of prep I wanted to do personally on that given day, because I didn't have the fear of, well, I'm going to have to do this seven more times. But yeah, I don't think it's ever easy, but it's it's just lucky to have a piece that you feel you want to do that for. I just can't imagine the crew of the movie. Did it ever bum you out that they weren't an audience? Yes, of course. I grew up doing musical theater. I started when I was like nine years old and I that's kind of my bread and butter. And I feel like there's nothing like receiving that because it's so kind of cyclical. Like you throw a bunch of energy out and it gets to come back at you. Whereas the crew is like mandated to be completely silent. So like what it feels like is it's just like you're sending all this stuff out into the universe and it's just falling flat on the floor and going nowhere. So it was an adjustment, definitely. But I think the saving grace in that scenario was the incredible company of actors that were in the film with me and having those people receive it directly. And that, I think, by virtue of the fact that I was giving it only to my co-stars and not to any spectators, made the performance and the piece a lot smaller and kind of more human and like a little bit closer to the ground because you obviously can't get away with the sort of grandstanding presentational emotion that is possible in musical theater. So I think it was a nice challenge. But yeah, I missed I missed having, you know, people's audible sobs and laughter. <laughs> My dad read a profile of Robert Young, who played the father in Father Knows Best. Mm-hmm. He said that playing that character made him a better father and a better man and a better husband. Simply the absorption, I think, of playing a character. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that because though you created Evan and he is you in a sense that you can't really reflect on Evan changing you. Yes and no. I mean, I think obviously in like kind of the more superficial ways when I look at my life and like the doors that have opened and kind of the connections that I've been able to make, I can think about him changing me in that sense. But I think on a human level, I feel like as much as I felt seen and and have grown from feeling like I'm like him in terms of like the fact that we both struggle with anxiety and, you know, we both struggle in like large social situations. And it's nice to play someone where you feel at home in that way. But I think what I've carried with me more so in a strange way is like reveling in the parts of me that are not like him and sort of like appreciating that and being grateful that I do feel seen by some people in my life and that I do have people around me that accept me and that love me and that that I feel like I have a community to receive me in a way that he doesn't. Hopefully, eventually we, you know, suggest that he will find that. But I think that and also my ability to emotionally communicate, I think both has grown obviously with with age, but also it has made me really lean into that as a skill and really appreciate and foster that in myself because I know that so much of what Evan goes through is a product of his inability to to do that, to communicate what he's feeling and to open up to people and 
I think if I already had a seed of that, I've now really tried to like tend that garden because I, it's sort of like a what not to do kind of thing. What a great answer. And I love a gardening analogy. <laughs> All right. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Oh, New York City. I love New York. And I usually live there. I was there for the last eight years or so. I left for the pandemic to come home with my family. And I'm staying around L.A. because my partner works in Vancouver. And so for now, it's just nice to be proximal. And I do like L.A. very much. I grew up here. But New York is just my favorite place. There's live theater and you can walk everywhere. And there's so much community and it feels very together. I just really love it. Los Angeles couldn't feel more like the antithesis. In every way, which some in some ways is nice. I mean, it's nice to have space and feel like an openness and a temperate kind of weather all the time and very industry-based all the time, which is tiring but also cool. But yes, it's it's a little bit more isolating and like a little bit less diverse in terms of just types of human beings that you'll encounter on a daily basis. I think you really have to go out of your way in LA to like make that happen for yourself. Whereas in New York, you just walk out the door and I think you're like immersed in a way that's special. Do you have a favorite movie that you could watch over and over? Yeah, I really love Pleasantville with Joan Allen and Reese Witherspoon and Tobey Maguire and Jeff Daniels. And it's a really, really beautiful movie and has an amazing Randy Newman score that I like to play on the piano and listen to. And I just grew up loving it. And I think I, I, my entry point to it was that I was a big Wizard of Oz kid. I used to watch Wizard of Oz after school every day. And so the element of like the black and white turning to color, which is kind of what Pleasantville is all about as sort of this great metaphor for, you know, life is nothing without complications and emotions and passion and sexuality and et cetera. Uh, I think that was like my in as a young person was that cool effect. And then as I've gotten older, I've learned like that it actually just really is a beautiful film on a deeper level than that. So I, I always go back to that. So I heard you love Judy Garland. There's a poster of Judy Garland above my bed. I love her very much. Can you tell me what you love about her? Well, first of all, just the voice is, I mean, it's hard to kind of escape that singular once in a lifetime, once in a generation voice. And I think it's so uniquely hers. And so that's already going to get me sort of obsessed with somebody. But I think with her, it's about this weird juxtaposition of like darkness and effervescence and light. It's like she's, there's an underbelly, there's something happening under the surface that's really fascinating and heartbreaking. Yet she gives up so much joyful, frenetic energy with her voice and with her performance that it's like this bittersweet feeling that I just really love. I completely agree. There is like a fighting through the tragedy spirit about her. And I think Liza has a bit of it too. Oh, yes, for sure. I mean, I would hope so. Do you collect anything? I collect stray chopsticks whenever I order sushi because I'm always looking for chopsticks. But <laughs> that's all I can think of. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I'm a hoarder. <laughs> like my shower, it looks like I have 18 sorority sisters. Why, you love like washes and shampoos and all that kind of stuff? Yes, but I also have a funny thing about throwing something away, even if I don't care for it. Because maybe someday, you know, you'll need it or you'll want it or, yeah, I feel that. I don't want to have to go to the store. <laughs> Just go to the shower. What or who has influenced your career the most? Wow. The instinct is just to go to the earliest thing that influenced my career and has stuck with me. And that's probably my drama teacher. Her name's Janet Adderley. And she has this place called the Adderley School in the Palisades here in L.A. That's like an after school program where we would go once a week and over the course of like three, four months, rehearse a show and then perform it for the parents. And it's where I met a lot of my dearest friends that I still have. And I also think I was like this empty vessel. And then it just that place just kind of filled me with show tunes and with Broadway and with 
a love and appreciation for those things. It was the first place that I went as a young person where I felt like in charge or like sort of powerful and confident because in my very kind of binary sort of run-of-the-mill school experience. That wasn't necessarily the most valued thing in elementary school and middle school to do musical theater or to be to sing as a guy or to, you know, it, I certainly didn't face the kind of adversity that I know a lot of young people face, especially young queer people. But I think it was the place where I felt like I came into myself. And I think she just always instilled in me this idea that like making a little family and, and making the experience one that's bonded and special and personal is like the whole point. And it's not just an added bonus of doing theater or like a byproduct you might get doing theater. It's sort of integral to what makes theater good and makes it work. And I think that that's been a very special message for me to carry forward. That sounds like an awesome experience. It, it really was. And I'm very grateful that I still have my buddies from that. Have you ever done a multicam? I did an episode of Will and Grace that was like really infectious because it's like a hybrid. It's like making a little play and yet you get to play for camera so it can stay a little bit small, but it's still with the energy of the crowd. I really loved it. I would love to do it more. So then back to the idea of having an audience, could you say that you enjoyed one Evan Hansen experience more than the other? I mean, the stage show was just such a dream and it was such a more involved process in terms of like, years of my life. So it's hard not to say that just because it was, you know, all I ever wanted for like the first 16 years of my life was just like to be on Broadway in my own role and to originate something and to get to show all my abilities in one performance. And just like, it just was like a hat on a hat on a hat on a hat. And then on top of all that, it's just the medium that I love the most. So I think ultimately it's hard to beat that. But then the film obviously in its own way was very special in the sense that it was this greater responsibility of like, this is the immortalized version. Like this is what's, you know, hundreds of thousands of more young people than we'll ever see the show are going to get to see. And on top of that, you know, my father was also a producer on the film. And so it's the first time that we've gotten to collaborate, which was also very special on a personal level. So in its own little gem kind of way, it was, it was equally special. But I think like as a human, did I get filled up more by the show on stage? Probably, yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Isn't it kind of rad to be a part of something and kind of be able to say goodbye to it in a pretty awesome way? Yes. It was like an exorcism of each little piece one at a time, which is something I really appreciated about the director, Stephen Chbosky, is that every time we would, you know, get to a certain number or a certain song, at the end of that day, you know, if he knew that we had all the coverage and we were about to wrap it up, he would always let me know, like, this is the last pass through this song. This is the last part. Like, this one's for you. Just you say goodbye, you do it. Just helping me to really process each goodbye as we went along. And then by the end, I really felt sort of freed of the character. And I flew home, like in the morning. And then that night, I shaved my head and I pierced my ear. And I was like, goodbye, Evan Hansen forever. <laughs> I love that. Okay, Ben, what was your first love like? My first love was tumultuous, as is to be expected, and sort of misguided, which I think is also to be expected. Do you mind my asking how old you were? I was 18, going on 19, and I was doing Pitch Perfect. 
And one of the guys in the movie with me, I just like fell so in love with. And he was not yet comfortable with himself. So he was closeted. And we had to keep the whole thing under wraps for that reason. Because I felt so in love for the first time and so infatuated with him because he was like talented and cool and, you know, mysterious and also really sensitive secretly and like really loving, but only in private. Like all these things were sort of pulling me in the different directions. And I, I just got really invested really fast. And I, you know, regret that I was so kind of impressionable because I, you know, was dishonest with like my family and with my friends and really just like lied and changed myself for him because I just loved him so much and I would do anything he asked me to do. And unfortunately, he just wasn't at a place where he was comfortable with who he was. We dated for like nine months and it stayed secretive the whole time. Do you mind my asking, Ben, if the lies were in regards to his being closeted? Yeah, I had to sort of keep everyone under the impression that we're like buddies. Obviously, people close to us, yeah, we were working with, they knew what was happening. And my, you know, my best friends in the world, I couldn't help but tell them. But to my parents for a long time and to, you know, anyone else in the professional realm and to anyone like beyond this close to me, I had to sort of continue to pretend that we were friends. And I had to go be around his family as his friend. And, you know, it just was, you know, scarring, but kind of a rite of passage for a queer person, which I hope is slowly becoming extinct, this kind of phenomenon of wanting to be with people who aren't yet comfortable with themselves. But it reached kind of a peak. And after like nine months of doing this, I was like, you know, I'm in love with you. And I've like shifted my whole life around for you. And and so can we please come out with it and just like be honest about it? And he was like, I don't want to do that. And I was like, well, then I don't think we should do this anymore. So we broke up. We spent the summer doing different jobs. He did a play somewhere. I did a play somewhere. And then when I came back to New York after the play, I heard from a mutual friend that he was like out of the closet with another person living with this guy. Like basically I was sort of his gateway, which I'm happy to be, but it was a little bit painful of a gate to be. Um, so that was my first love and also my first heartbreak to kind of kill two birds with one stone. That was also a tough blow to come back and find him like totally comfortable now without me. Was it hard to not take that personally or did you blame societal pressure? Mm -hmm. It was definitely both. I mean, certainly like societal and also I think familial and also just internal. I think he just struggled with liking himself and loving himself. And so I, of course, as a, you know, 18, 19 year old, I, was like, it's me. He's embarrassed of me. He doesn't want to show me to anyone. But now, obviously, I have a much more perspective. And ultimately, I, I know that it could have been really anybody. And, yeah. and to his credit, he's still now with the guy that he was with when I got home. So they've been together for like seven years. And they're very happy. So very happy for them. That's really nice. So what was that summer like doing a different job? It was nice to immerse in theater and to distract myself with my favorite distraction. And I did a show at Barrington Stage Company and then also at Vassar at New York Stage and Film. I'm kind of back to back that summer. So I really was able to inundate and hang out with, you know, other cast members and have those fun like summer theater bonding experiences to really like get out of my own head. And then the bizarre part was that in one of the shows I was doing that summer, there was this young girl in it with me who was my age. And we got really close because we were, you know, we were all living together and we were doing a musical and just loved her. She was wonderful. And then we were talking like, you know, a month into knowing each other and being friends. And it came out that she had also dated the same guy when they were in high school, that they went to high school together and that she had been the last girl that he dated before he dated me. And we kind of got to like this weird cosmic universe, like bond over like the ways that he had wronged both of us and like further become closer because of it. And it was this weird kind of like 
I'm where I'm supposed to be kind of a feeling. That is awesome. Yeah, it was cool. That is sort of perfect. <laughs> yeah, it was it was earned. <laughs> yeah. Like if you can't get the ultimate satisfaction of someone like begging for your love back. Yeah, it's a good consolation prize. Yeah. So have you experienced other meaningful heartbreak? I think it was probably kind of the only other major relationship that I've been in outside of this first kind of misguided one and and now my, you know, my love that I'm with now. But um, he was a uh, songwriter that I worked with on my album, my first album. And we wrote a lot of beautiful music together and we wrote a lot about ourselves and what we were feeling for each other. And it's just very kind of Astahar is born, like artistic love affair, you know, juicy kind of thing. But there was always something sort of unavailable about it and about him. And he was very noncommittal and just isn't really the type of person that is looking to like do something that's that concrete or to really like lock it down in any kind of a way that me as a Jewish mother I'm looking to do. So I sort of hung on for as long as I could. And it ended with us writing a song together sort of about what we both knew was happening, which is that he was asking me to go, that he needed like space to go and become who he is. And, you know, that he wasn't really looking for this like, you know, intense kind of partnership. And I was sort of saying to him, why are those things mutually exclusive? You know, why can't we be together and you can still grow and I'll give you space to be who you are and you give me space to be who I am and yet we'll do it together. And so we wrote this song, Grow As We Go, about it. And it was a heartbreak because it was like so beautiful and I was so proud of the song and it's so special. But then at the same time, it just had this kind of pit of, of sadness to it that the repercussions are for me personally, but the song is kind of for everyone else. So probably one of those two things. But he's, again, a wonderful person and we're still very much friends. And as far as heartbreaks go, I was able to bounce back, but it was a tough couple of weeks, months. Ben, I'm really intrigued by the Jewish mother comment. <laughs> Will you tell me what you mean? I just mean that I grew up in like a pretty observant Jewish household and all of my giant extended family and friends are, you know, largely Jewish. And so culturally, I have kind of naturally, innately, a lot of those same predispositions as my Jewish mother. So my anxiety and, you know, my worrying about everybody and my desire to bring people together and have big meals and have everybody talk and share their feelings and the emphasis on kind of finding like a life partner and having children and babies and all of this kind of domesticated sort of family focused stuff, which is probably the thing that I'm most grateful for in terms of my Jewish upbringing is that it's that stuff is really ingrained in me in terms of like that that should come before all of the other personal pursuits and, and passions and stuff like that. I love that. And I can relate to it. I like to be in a monogamous relationship. I like kind of having nesting. Yes. I like to cook. You know, I do hoard. I probably hoard a lot more <laughs> than you do, Ben. I'm a bad cook and I was almost no cook at all. But now my partner, Noah, he's like an incredible cook, like pretty much a chef. And so I went from when we, before we started dating, the gas was turned off in my apartment. Like I literally didn't even use, like I was putting sweaters in the oven like Harry Bradshaw. And now I can make like a bolognese by myself from scratch. I can sous chef for him. I'm learning these life skills. It's very nice. Will you tell us about Noah? How did you guys meet? We were friends for a long time. We met doing a web series that he made with one of my best friends from growing up. Her name's Molly Gordon. She went to Adderley with me to bring it all full circle to that theater program. Do you mind my asking what the web series was? Of course. And I don't think it ever actually got released. They just used it to, as sort of proof of concept. But it was called I Hear They're Happy. And it was very, very funny, very good. Our friend Nick Lieberman directed it. And Noah and Molly starred in it. 
they brought me in to do like a little guest role and I met Noah and I think we immediately kind of connected and saw something in each other and we felt very similar spirits. And then shortly thereafter, we did a musical workshop together of this this new show called Alice by Heart that he eventually did the production of. And Molly was in that with us as well. And that was the first time we spent like kind of an extended period of time together. And we immediately started sort of dating, you know, hooking up, what have you. And it came, it became romantic very quickly. And then I shortly thereafter really kind of freaked out and pulled out sort of. And it was right when Evan Hansen was starting. And I also was just like young and kind of dumb. And I was just like, I, I don't, I'm not ready for this. And, you know, I think it's clear that you're going to be an important person in my whole life. And you're, you know, you're, we have all the same friends and we're going to know each other for a long time. And I think I'm just going to mess this up. I just don't want to do this yet. And obviously, understandably so, he was, you know, a little upset with me. But then when we had some removal from that, we became really good friends. And then for about four years, we were just really dear friends that would every so often have some sort of dalliance or, you know, find ourselves back in the same spot. And I would always kind of beat around the bush. And then eventually last year, or I guess 2019, we got to kind of a crossroads where it was clearly kind of time to either really do this or to not keep bringing this back up because it was hurting his feelings. And also it just wasn't healthy for either of us. Were you guys living in different cities? New York, both in New York. Who wants to bring up the crossroads? Who was motivating? I think he just knew a lot sooner than I did really how special it was and like the fact that this really could be the thing. And I think I had all these kind of preconceived notions in my head about like who that person would be that were really irrelevant ultimately, but that I was so kind of clinging on to, like, they're not going to be an artist like me. They're going to do something totally different and they're going to be older than me. And they're going to just all these like sort of arbitrary things. And then the crossroads really came from my kind of being enlightened and kind of joining the reality that he was in when I did this Radio City show that's now on Netflix as a special. It was a concert for my first album and it was a very special night. Obviously, I've never played there before. And uh, I had everybody that I love all there. My whole family came and all my friends and it felt like my like adult bar mitzvah. And I was dating someone kind of random at the time. And afterwards, I had a party because it was like sort of a you know celebration for my birthday and also for the concert. And I just remember walking into the party and seeing like everybody that I loved, including this random guy that I was dating. And then thinking to myself, like the only person that I actually really want to go and see and spend time with and like go home with is Noah. And so I think something about that like, life-shifting perspective of having something so big happen and thinking about like, who do I actually care about how they felt about it and what they think about it? And, you know, it was just him. And so we did end up going home together. And then from that night forward, it just sort of shifted. And then shortly thereafter, we had the kind of real conscious conversation of like, let's do this exclusively. Let's really date. And so it's been like a year and a half since then. And we're going strong. And then, of course, like quarantine probably hit shortly after that night at Radio City Music Hall, right? Yeah. So that was in the fall. And then we started sort of hardcore, like we're doing the real thing dating at the beginning of January of 2020. So we only had like two months of normal relationship. Right. So like quarantine made you double down on. Straight up. <laughs> it was like a put up or shut up, sort of like zero to 60. But it ended up being kind of exactly what we needed in a beautiful way. I mean, obviously, I wish that this had never occurred for a myriad of reasons. But the one nice kind of byproduct was we had been skating around it for so long, especially me and like, you know, doing versions of it and, you know, knowing each other and but not really ever like diving entirely in. And this was like, okay, there's nothing to do but dive all the way in. So we were like living together. He stayed with me and my family for most of the beginning and met, you know, all my siblings and my nephews and my parents. And we were spending 24-7 together and really like seeing what it really was. And then, of course, it ended up being the love of my life. So 
That's always good. I love that so much. This year has been a really introspective year for me. And I'm really grateful for that element. Absolutely. I feel like there's not a single person that hasn't investigated themselves in a way that they haven't before, me included. A hundred percent. It really made me focus on the things and people that were most important to me and to devote more time to those people. In my heart, I feel that way. And now that I know what it's like to have life together with him, I don't have any desire to do it without him. So thank you for opening up about this stuff. Of course. And the blanket under which this should all fall is that I, like everyone, I truly know nothing. But, you know, (laughs) I can just speak from my own experience. You know, generosity of heart. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, what is your relationship with fame? Probably similar to yours or to anyone's in the sense that there's some things that are wonderful and some things that I hate. I'd say the best part of it is just knowing that when I do create something that I love or if I make music that I love or that I'm, you know, act in a piece that I think is important, I have a platform to get that out there or to have a lot of people see that and get eyes on it. And that's the best part. I think that's like a gift. And I try to take that responsibility as seriously as I can without like psyching myself out. And I like running into people who have been moved or changed in some way by what I've done. And there are certain encounters that are really meaningful ones that I really am grateful for. But then I also feel that it's terrifying and sort of detrimental and like that I exist as this kind of idea of somebody for a lot of people or this like version of myself that I subconsciously have to try to sort of maintain in addition to just like figuring out who I actually am, which is just kind of a weird mind game. And, you know, I'm an anxious kind of private person. So the idea that anyone is sort of looking in, wanting to know what's going on, I'm sure that you feel this very deeply, that that is unsettling to me for sure. Did you ever have a moment in your youth, like when you were first experiencing heady fame, that in hindsight, you felt like you may have had a hint of like sort of drinking the Kool-Aid? Yes. I ask this because I have a couple of cringers that I'm really glad weren't recorded. (laughs) Of course. I'm trying to think of like specific moments, but certainly in the, you know, the apex of that whole Evan Hansen, like netball, time 100 most influential people, like that was all happening in the same like six months. So I think, I mean, the nice thing about that particular time was that I was having to still be doing that performance every night. So like, so you're pretty (laughs) exhausted. It's hard to have the mental energy to be like poisoned by 
your newfound fame. Exactly, exactly. And I think it also just kept me humble in a sense that it's like, as celebrated as you are during the day, like you still have to come and do this two and a half hour piece at night and like really deliver it. There's no like faking through it. You know, there were moments where I was like, there's a lot of relationships in my life I don't need to be worried about or invested in or checking in on because like they'll make sure that we stay in touch because like they want to stay in touch with me. I don't need to worry about it from my side because they know I'm busy and I'm doing all this stuff. And, and that's a dangerous thing for sure. I feel like that's another kind of pandemic realization that a lot of us have had is that like if there are relationships that are meaningful to you they have to be like entirely two-way streets it can't be sort of like you sitting on your butt kind of waiting for someone to ask how you are or check in on you so I think yeah I certainly got in my own way a little bit but I feel like I was you know 23 24 having this like intense totally like lift to the mountaintop so I'm just glad that it didn't manifest in any scarier ways than that although I'm sure that did I just don't remember no I remember like when I was 12 I was scout in To Kill a Mockingbird. I did a lot of theater up in Seattle, both like at the school and in the region. But I did this local radio interview at like four in the morning to promote the Village Theater's production of To Kill a Mockingbird. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but on the car ride home, my mom said, I am shocked. I am really embarrassed. I don't know who that was in there. Like... I guess I sort of put on a weird, affected voice, like must have been (laughs) ridiculous. But that shame, man, I carried that with me for a while. And I still think about it. I really want to hear this interview. (laughs) 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 We got to track it down. Ben, have you ever written a fan letter? Yeah, of course. I wrote to Norbert Leo Butts one time. I don't know if I know who that is. Forgive me. That's okay. He's a Broadway guy. My dad produced Wicked when I was growing up. And he was he was Fierro in the original, and I just loved him. And my dad would let us come to the opening and stuff like that. So it's like I I encountered him plenty of times in person. But I was like you know eleven and gay and just obsessed with him. And so I sent a, a letter to him to the stage door, just telling him that he was inspiration to me and that I wanted to be a Broadway star like him. And I loved that he could play so many different characters. And so I definitely wrote that one to him. And then I'm pretty sure that I wrote one to Barbara Streisand when I was younger who also I've now gotten the opportunity to meet and know thanks both to the fact that she came to Evan Hansen and also just because she's worked with my father in the past. But I think my family was a big funny girl household. And so I... I, Ben, you got to give us some like, I don't know, you got to dish on Barbara a little bit. She's the greatest. I mean, she... My favorite interaction that I've had with her, when she came to Evan Hansen, she came backstage. First of all, just incredibly generous of her to even come to see it because she gets obviously absolutely mobbed if she shows up at any theatrical event. So I just really appreciated that she came and took the time to come backstage and say hello. And so she just, she came to my dressing room and we sat down and she was like, you have to talk to me about the crying and the singing. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she was like, well, tell me, how do you, like, how do you get the snot? How do you cry? And still like, you still resonating, you still sound good. Like what's happening? And I was like, I don't know what to say because like, you're the queen of that. You're like, you're like, you won an Oscar for that. Like you, like my man in Funny Girl in the movie, like that's exactly what it is. She's like living this full emotional thing and then singing gorgeously at the same time. And I was like, I learned from you. So I don't really know what to say back to that. But that was just a very special like life. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Will you tell me a little bit? I want to live vicariously through you about seeing like the opening of Wicked, like the power of that particular show. It's like a freight train. It must have been so dynamic. 
like I said, I loved Wizard of Oz growing up. So like my two greatest loves were like Wizard of Oz and musical theater. So the fact that it was like a musical in the world of the Wizard of Oz was like I was falling out of my skin, like so excited about it. And I just remember hearing like, you know, recordings of the workshops and readings like in the car on the way to school that my dad would play for us and ask us about like what songs we liked and stuff like that. And and then the first time I saw it was in San Francisco when they did their out-of-town tryout. And I saw the, the big production for the first time. And I think that show has this weird ability, like with a lot of young people, I feel like a lot of people my age or around my age, like saw it at this very formative, like, you know, 11 to 14, 15 time when it was like, this is what I want to do with my life. It was like that kind of show where it was like the emotion and the spectacle. And it was like that for me, but like times a million, because it was like Wizard of Oz and it was my dad. And it was just like, I just remember feeling like it doesn't get better than this. And it was just so unbelievable, magical. Was it Kristen Chenoweth and Adina Menzel? Yes, both of them. Like, I can't imagine. Just brilliant. And also just like carrying the weight of the world. Like, obviously, I have some sense of what that's like now because of Evan Hansen, but it was a much higher stakes situation going in because it was a huge production and there was a lot of, you know, buzz about it. And it was a big IP and like, it's just a lot on their shoulders. And those are both really difficult roles. And they're just both absolutely incredible. I mean, they're both legendary because of it and after it, and it makes total sense. I was watching some YouTube videos of you on different appearances, <laughs> so forgive me with this next question, but I was curious about why Sunday in the Park with George is your favorite musical. There's a giant poster of it outside this room, but it's my favorite because, well, I love Stephen Sondheim, who wrote the music. Obviously, he's just the greatest musical theater composer that has ever lived, so obviously my favorite would be one of his, but... For me, it has always resonated with me because it's about this artist and it's ultimately about like what he's willing to sacrifice for his art, like what he has to come to terms with in order to really invest like in his passion and like allow himself to invest in his passion. And that's just being okay with living somewhat in your head all the time. I think as a kid, like, which I still do, I, I lived a little bit in my head and I overanalyzed and I was always thinking about the shows I was doing and the songs I was singing and just was always a little bit removed and I think that's sort of the price that comes along with being an artist a little bit. I mean, obviously to varying degrees, but to be willing to sacrifice some of your personal relationships and some of your leisurely happiness in order to just always be living in your art a little bit. And I think that that kind of message and, and a character that was tragic for that reason always really resonated with me. So I, I've always loved that character in that show and always have wanted to play that character. I hope to for sure at some time down the line. And also the score is just really, really, really beautiful. You have to watch. I will. There's a really great, I think it's on Netflix or Prime or something. Oh, really? A beautiful recording for, that they did for PBS of the original. So it's like Mandy Patinkin, Bernadette Peters. <gasps> oh, great. And it's really well filmed and it's just so beautiful. Highly recommend. All right. So will you tell us then about your new album? Yeah, of course. It's called Reverie and it comes out really soon. August 13th. Yes. And... Um, I wrote it mostly during the pandemic. Um, I was living in my childhood bedroom and I was using my like old keyboard and writing on Zoom with my other producers and writers. And I knew that I was supposed to be making my second record during this time. And then obviously the pandemic hit and I felt like this isn't going to happen. Everyone felt so topsy-turvy in those first few months. And I was like, this isn't a great environment for making music. And how do you make music without being in the room with people? And as the time started to go on, I ended up feeling like really inspired by the situation. I never expected to be living in that room again. So I was like caught in between like feeling totally reverted to my teenage self and like really who I was and what I used to love and 
the music I used to listen to and at the same time feeling like more adult with more perspective and more evolved and more in love like than I'd ever been before. So it's like kind of caught between those two worlds. And I feel like that's kind of where the album lives. It's like it's got kind of the, you know, emotionality and like a bit of the theatricality that like I grew up with and that I've always loved. But I think sonically, stylistically now lives a little bit more in the kind of pop world and uh, the tempo world that I have grown to love like as an adult and sort of like a Phil Collins, Peter Gabriel 2021 kind of vibe. Awesome. I can't wait. Yeah, thanks. That makes me want to ask what talent or ability would you most like to have? I was kind of hoping for an idea of an instrument that you might love to play, Ooh. but I kind of would love both ideas. Yeah, I'm going to give you both. The guitar is definitely the instrument answer. I've tried a couple of times and given up because it like hurts your fingers and it's frustrating, but I really want to be able to play guitar because I only play piano, which I love, but you can't bring it with you anywhere. And the guitar is so infinitely portable. So I would love to be able to do that. And then like zooming out any ability. Oh, wow. I'd love to have like any visual art ability, like to draw or paint or like, I just don't have that muscle. Like I just can't do that. My handwriting is like not very legible. Like I just don't have that muscle. It's always so like unbelievably shocking to me when people can do that. It's like, it feels like superhuman in a way. I'd like to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. Do you like to travel? Love to travel, especially with Noah now. He's a really, really good travel partner. What makes a good travel partner? That's a good question. I think it's about controlled chaos. Like, I think it's about, like, somebody who's willing to have a structure and, like, have a, a game plan so that we have something to build on when we get somewhere, but then is equally willing to throw things out the window and, like, go with the flow and be spontaneous and experience a place within that framework. And I think we share that balance together. Yeah, I agree. I like that controlled chaos. And I think there's also, if you are fundamentally a person who can kind of make the best out of most situations, then that makes for a good traveling partner. Absolutely. If you can like, you can get bogged down, you know, post ranch in it <gasps> and also motel six it. We just went to post ranch in. I heard you talking about Big Sur and I was like, I bet you went to post ranch. It's just glorious, isn't it? Yeah. We went for Noah's birthday. It was like going to a different planet for a little while. It was beautiful. That's what the islands up north are like, <gasps> the San Juan Islands. Oh, well, I have to go. Yes, I know. You guys would love it. What advice would you give your younger self? Two things. I would say spend more time with your parents because when you're younger, that feels like, like, come on. Oh my God. I love you. I know. <laughs> and I love them, of course. And I we had a wonderful relationship, but I, you know, it's not forever that you're going to be living in the house with them and spending every day with them. So I would just say like, try to appreciate that. I know it's weird, but uncomfortable, but it's special. And then I would also say, try to get out of your head. You know, I feel like I still struggle with that, but have gotten better as I've gotten older. But I would say, you know, you're missing a lot of being present for certain things because you're worried about what's happened already or what's about to happen or what may happen or you're premeditating whatever disastrous outcomes might happen to sort of protect yourself. But I think I did miss a little bit of being present when I was young because I was very overly analytical. So I would try to tell him to just like try to be where you are. I think that's why I love performing so much and why I still love performing so much is that it kind of forces you to do that. So I would just say to him, you know, Try to harness that outside of the stage and use that in your life and not just when you're performing. What is the best advice you've ever been given? My dad gives me the best advice on a regular basis, but I think that the best piece would be that being a decent human being is both vital to and more important than being a decent artist. And I think it's like 
they are intertwined. Like, I don't think it's possible to truly be a great artist or a meaningful artist if you're not a meaningful human being. And also, it's not really worth it to be a great artist if you can't also be a good human being. And so I think he always has helped me prioritize that. And I think seeing that from him, who's someone that on a surface level, obviously, is incredibly career focused and successful and creative minded. But even within that context, the fact that he values sort of his humanity over that, I think, set me on a really good course. That's really wonderful in this town that is consumed by our industry. Mm -hmm. Okay, two more questions. What intimidates you? I think what intimidates me the most is the idea of like operating in the world completely independently from my abilities or my art or my creative passions, like being been completely separated from music and singing and performing and acting and all of that. And just like what's left if all of that's gone, that intimidates me. That's really interesting. Ben, I used to have a question. Sometimes I'll still ask it. If like acting or anything in the entertainment industry were to become illegal, how would you earn a living? Oh. <laughs> Which is a really tough one for me. That's intimidating. Yeah. I guess I would like teach or watch children or something with children. But yeah, that's intimidating to me. To whom would you most like to apologize and why? I think I would apologize to this guy who I worked with, who I like really was in love with. Like I became very obsessed with and infatuated with him. And he was a really dear friend of mine and still is a friend of mine. But we were working together on a project and we just became very close and we sort of became each other's person for that project. You know, you kind of always mm -hmm. need like a, like a work husband of some kind to kind of download everything with. And everybody else around us was in relationships. And I think he and I just like sort of fell into like a pseudo one because we needed to. And I was the one who was sort of like feeling that actually like romantically and he just wasn't. And he was very upfront with me about the fact that he wasn't. And yet I think because I wanted so badly for him too, and because I was so disappointed that he didn't, I really kind of villainized him both to myself and to my friends and kind of had to really like paint him as kind of a bad person in my mind in order to not be so hurt by it. But he really wasn't. And it's not really his fault. And he has his own issues. And he was very supportive of me. And since then, we've reached a very friendly place. And it's okay. But I think I would more fully say, you know, I was young, and I understand where you're coming from. And it's not your fault that you didn't feel the same way. And so I would apologize. That is beautiful perspective. Thanks. Ben, I can't thank you enough. This has been just an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for the beautiful questions. And I cannot wait. Dear Evan Hansen comes out September 24th and Reverie comes out August 13th. Yeah. Ben, thank you so much. I'm a huge fan. Please come to Friday Harbor someday. I'll be there. All right. I adore you. Mwah, thank you. Thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hey everyone, April Beyer is back now officially as my much needed co-host. As you know from previous episodes, April brings great advice, insight, and years of experience. I am so thrilled to have her. Hi, are you Anna or Anna? Hi, I am Anna. Hi, Anna. <gasps> Kindred spirit. It's so nice to meet you, Anna, and you're here with April Beyer. So, Anna, will you tell us what's going on? Yeah, sure. I've been in relationships for six years, uh, and it's very long-distance relationships. My boyfriend is somewhere in the middle of nowhere, Europe. (laughs) I moved here five years ago, so it's been long-distance the whole time. Uh, I was going back for a month every year just to have that physical connection to keep everything going. We've been chatting online a lot. And now after six years, he decided that it's time to get engaged and maybe next year to get married. And I am in, like standing in front of this decision that I'm not sure what should I do because it's been like six, six years of roller coasters. Like there was cheating involved. There was like cooling and then again heating up in relationships involved and all that (laughs) are you engaged right now do you have a ring no I don't have a ring but if this year I go back he's gonna propose to me I know that because he already talked to my family and everything so Anna I mean right off the bat it feels like no So I'm curious because in your letter, you write that you have been long distance for over five years. Then you moved to the U.S. He cheated and you're maybe feeling some pressure from your family as well. Or everyone is at least expecting you to get married. That's true. And I'm only 25 for the record. (laughs) So I wonder, what do you love about him? What keeps you in this? Um, I'll be completely honest. Uh, he changed a lot. He, he was an absolutely different person. And it was definitely the start of relationships. He was way more confident. And I was like the one who was trying to engage him more and like trying to drag him into relationships and all this. But then when I moved to U.S., I guess U.S. does this to you. You try to like get out of your comfort zone and get to know people, meet people and do all this stuff. And you start building career. I got accepted in UC and I always dreamed about going to UC San Diego and all that. So it really changed me. And I feel like I got more self-confident and now they're all switched. He's super sweet. He's trying to be understanding. Although when I told him that, hey, I might change my job, he's like, oh, well, your boss is going to be a man or a woman. I was like, 
wow. <laughs> like that, oh boy. I'm like, you don't trust my, why are you asking that question? Like I'm going to work like, cause right now I'm working in very like feminine and like all this environment and like everyone, every single of my coworkers are women. So he's like, oh, you're going to work with men. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to like grab lunch with men and everything. Like this is how like corporate America works. <laughs> this is, this is part of it. And all this. You're like torturing <laughs> him, Anna. <laughs> That's hysterical. You're like, yeah, there's going to be a lot of men. <laughs> No, but that's so many men. <laughs> well, the thing is that he knows if I start thinking about someone else, it's end of our relationship. Because I I've been through it. He done that to me. I know that sucks. So I'm not gonna do the same thing to him. But I feel like I've spent so much energy, time, and I shaped myself so much to fit into his perfection, like perfect woman kind of criteria that I'm. I, I, I feel sorry for that time. <laughs> I don't know if I can do it with someone else. Like I can adjust that much for someone else. I can like try to work on relationships with someone else that much. Like it's a lot of effort. <laughs> it sounds like you gave a lot and you shouldn't have to change just to fit into someone's idea of perfection. Ah, uh, yes. You know, to the outside world, it seems like you guys have been together for five, maybe six years, but Unless you've been together on a day-to-day basis for that five or six-year period of time, you can't really be in the position of thinking about proposal and engagement in marriage. How much of that five years have you actually been with each other in person? It would be like something around two years max. Okay. And I asked him and I was talking to him last time I had this feelings and I was like, listen, maybe we should figure some way that you can come here and we can like live at least on the same continent, not across the ocean because I cannot move back right now. I'm in school. I have work. Like I can't move back. And when we get married and if we get married, he's going to be the one who is going to be moving here. So I feel that big pressure also because he has friends and family and great career and he's going to come here for me. What if he doesn't like it? What if it's it's going to affect more our relationships? It's a huge responsibility on me. So I told him all this. He's like, oh, maybe you should have thought about this before like our parents talked before I talk to your parents. Well, that's okay. You know, he's the one that talked to your parents and you are allowed to have new thoughts and you're allowed to change your mind. And I'm just hearing you right now and I'm getting the feeling that there's so much of you that has grown since being here. Like you said, like there's a possibility that you have grown out of this relationship and you're entering into corporate world and you're finishing up your degree and like there's so much going on for you and you're not even in the same country, it just seems like a big decision to be made right now that you really don't have to. Yeah. Remember all the men, Anna? (laughs) (laughs) I guess it does feel like you are kind of in a relationship out of some degree of obligation and pressure because it has been so long. And you're used to the idea of you have your boyfriend in Europe, and that's how you've been operating for the entirety of your relationship, but it especially got emphasized as you moved to the U.S. And I'm not quite sure what the relationship offers you at this point. And I wanted to kind of explore if you were getting any pressure from your parents to get married. Sure. I'm coming from a background where some of my classmates already have two kids. 
and again, I'm we're only 25. Like I'm a kid myself. I cannot have a kid right now. And that's the norm in our society. I'm Armenian. I come with that background and everything. My parents are divorced. I even talked to my mom. I was like, listen, like, I don't want to go into something with an escape plan. I don't want to think about it. Oh, okay, if it doesn't work out in a year or two, I can just get a divorce. I don't want to go into something with an escape plan. It's not fair. And yes, granted, my mom says that he's a great guy. She started liking him because she doesn't know about all like the history of our relationships and everything. So I don't want her to hate him. Uh, he, she says that he's a nice guy. He's like, he's paying a lot of attention and he's very respectful towards my parents. My dad, however, he is very much against. <laughs> he says that I am going to just break the guy. <laughs> I don't know why. He says he's not seeing him in the U.S. It's going to be too much for him. Um, they really want to see a man by my side because they want to be sure that someone is going to take care of me and like I'm not going to get involved into something like that. I don't know, like more responsible, like someone who can really take responsibility for me. And that's that's just a cultural thing. That must be really tough to live between those two worlds. If I could tell my son to not get married until he was 30, if I could somehow forbid it, I would. But I know that's kind of an impossibility. But it is just because the 20s, April and I, we've talked a lot about this. The 20s are such, I think it's an, an important time to be pretty selfish in terms of finding out who you are, what you want out of life, what you want to do. And then the 30s are kind of for a little more filtration, sussing some stuff out. So that's sort of my stance on things. But that's also easy for me to say as like living in America all my life, not having other influences or the idea of, I thought it was interesting how you phrased how your dad wants to see a man by your side who, and you're just so young. There's so many changes in your life and you are really far apart. And you've had the comfort of just you don't have to go out into the dating world or like kind of explore anything because you have your boyfriend in Europe. And from what I've heard from you, you want a career. You don't want to have kids just yet. You moved here two years ago to Los Angeles. Like the world is kind of yours to explore right now. And I kind of want you to have that. I just don't love the sound of this man. <laughs> if I'm being fully honest, I just, I don't like that he's possessive. I don't like that he has a history of cheating. He may say all the things about change or whatever. I don't believe it. I don't know this poor guy. <laughs> I think right now you have the opportunity and you being here in the States is not a mistake. It's not an accident. Just by you moving here, you've already shifted the relationship. And I, I think you're aware of that. Yes, I am. I wasn't. I was trying. My life was miserable for three plus years because I was not leaving the house. I was going to school and then I was coming home. I was not even going to gym. I was not doing anything with my life. And then it clicked. I'm like, I didn't do anything. I haven't explored anything. I haven't done anything like I had friends, but I was like, okay, I have better friends back home and I have boyfriend back at home. Like, why would I spend my time hanging out with these people? And now I'm kind of like shifting and I go places and I hang out with people. And that's like a big part of our conversation uh, between me and him. And I just like one of those times I had to push it back and I had to say, listen, I cannot sit here and wait for another two years for you to come and like for me to live my life. It simply is not fair. 
is he close to your age? Uh, he's two years uh, older than me. Okay. So when two people are living, you know, an ocean apart, right? I don't really love the word cheating because what you guys did to one another with your distance at such a young age, it's virtually impossible to live in the United States and the other partner living in Europe and be faithful at any age, but especially yours. So a lot of times people use the word cheating in their 20s, and I'm like, eh, is it as much cheating as it was growth and you guys being so far apart in distance? It happened twice. <laughs> I didn't tell this. Uh, first time, it was like very much uh, Rachel and Ross situation in our relationship so we're taking a break or not and everything and I was back there and like our relationship just started we've been together for six months and then he was the one who wanted time off I was like okay and then he hung out with his old girlfriend and I saw them at the club and I was like okay like what is going on like we didn't end this we are just kind of it was on a cliffhanger the second time I understand the physical affection and everything I, I really do understand that but when your friend is sending you a video of them just hanging out and being super friendly, and you know that the time he could have spent talking to you, he's kind of investing that time into someone else. That really hurts. And I know that if you forgive something like this, you don't ever bring it up. I did. I let it go. But right now, I don't even, I'm not even, I'm very like jealous person in a sense. I'm very emotional. I'm, I can get heated up really fast, but I don't care about it anymore. It's not just forgiving it. Just like, I'm like, okay, do whatever you want. Like, like do whatever you want. I'm not saying you forgive or you forget. It's really just about an awareness and an understanding of being two people in their 20s who are not anywhere close. But yes, he did it in the beginning. But he was also a baby when you met him. He was 22. In my opinion, he still very much is. I don't like the preemptive jealousy at all. Yeah. That is like a red flag. Yeah, because that can affect your career. Yeah, and it's also, it just, it's a burden to live with, to have to be anxious about somebody's jealousy all the time. That's a lot. And people use it as a way to control. I also, when you found out about the cheating, did he tell you? I saw the video. My friend sent me a video of him with the girl. And I, I kind of was asking about this girl because she was very present on his social media. I was like, who is this? And he's co-worker. And then I sent him the video and he never fully confessed to it. But it's a very small city. Everyone knows everyone and everyone talks about everyone. So I kind of like 100% sure about that. I know that something happened between them. And every time I go back, when we see her in the restaurant or something, like either she leaves or if he thinks I haven't noticed her, we leave. It's very awkward. And on the other side, I myself, every time we go out, I never get approached by boys. My friends all call me unapproachable. They all tell me like, you never smile. You're not outgoing. You're just like coming and sitting there. You're super unapproachable. So I don't understand like, why can't I give up that energy? Because I know someone is there for me and like I cannot receive the same thing. So are you saying that you're afraid of creating attention because you have this backup of him being in your life? Are you shutting yourself out and down from kind of flirting and connecting with guys? I, I am. Because I feel like, okay, I'm in a relationship, so why would I do this? Like, Listen, you're 25. You're in a relationship with somebody all the way in Europe. 
That's not a relationship. That is a long-distance connection that has been going on way too long. No one should put themselves in a relationship capacity jail in their 20s with somebody on the other side of the world. You're a young, smart, beautiful girl. I did a talk at UCLA to all of the girls in the sororities, and one by one, they would get up and raise their hand. They're like, April, um, so what do you feel about long-distance dating? And I looked at them. I'm like, you go to UCLA. You're young. Like, there's plenty of guys right here. Like, why do you need to get on a plane, train, a bus, <laughs> an automobile? Like, do this now. Like, when we're older, we can kind of maintain these long-distance relationships differently because we've had a lot of experience. And even then, those relationships wear thin. But when you're at the massive stage of growth, as you are, and by the way, he is too, you're limiting your exposure. You're limiting your world. Because once you leave that small town where everybody knows your name and you move across the world to another place, it's no longer a fit. And since you're the one saying that you don't want the backup plan, then our response to you is, don't make the plan to begin with. There's no need. And by the way, you're smiling because you know it's true. Totally. <laughs> you, you, That's why it's kind of easy, I feel like, to tell her this. Yeah, you want to hear this. Like, you're so pretty, and I don't think you're unapproachable. I think you're just hiding your light, you know, because you don't want the attention from guys. But the second you turn your smile on and your light goes on, oh, my God, you're going to be receiving all kinds of attention from guys. And Anna, I think he's like your last security blanket. Like, it might be time to, like, shed the final one, you know? How do you do that? <laughs> well, okay. Without, without making anyone cry or, like... Impossible. <laughs> about yourself. What's so bad about crying? Well, if I'm crying, it's okay. I don't want to make anyone cry. Sorry, you can't control that. <laughs> and it won't be as bad. It really won't. People get over it. Your family totally will get over it, especially if you want to tell them everything. But I think you're just starting a new life. And I think you've told us in just a short amount of time that it doesn't seem like you will fit in. I do think you seem really excited to enjoy life and life experiences. And I'm really excited for you. And I just don't see how a person you may not even know all that well, there hasn't been any growth because you guys haven't been around each other in any way. I totally just want to give you permission to call him up and say, I'm starting a new life here and I want to be single. And he can handle it. Are we breaking them up, Anna? <laughs> it just feels like that's the writing on the wall because how do they go backwards? And what does the engagement mean? It feels like this sort of vague, like, will he move to the U.S.? And you're in like a relationship limbo until you can really spend time with each other. And I don't see his assimilation in your life working very smoothly in the U.S., you know? When we started talking about the whole engagement stuff, I was like, okay, let's plan it. I reached out to my girlfriend who is a designer for my dress and like all these places. And I started like texting all my photographer friends and everything. And then that's what I was talking. Like I was excited about the idea of it for a second. And then he's like, can we not talk about this? Cause I feel like this is all you want to talk about. And then like, he took the last excitement away from me. I was He's like, like, don't make it real. 
Yeah, because this pending proposal is more about last-ditch effort to hang on to something, to control, to stay in something more than it's an expression of growth and love and collaboration. And for you, you fell in love with love and you fell in love with the idea of it, as a lot of girls do, right? We fantasize about our dress and the day and it's like one big party. I remember Oprah Winfrey did a show which was hysterical about women who have like almost like a postpartum after their wedding day. (laughs) Yes. It's like the day after Christmas. Yeah. It's like there's this huge That's why a honeymoon is essential. (laughs) Because the whole thing was about the party, right? The planning. And then all of a sudden the guests leave and you're just looking at each other going, who the heck are you? Um, It's real, right? I also am concerned about the are you working with men because he doesn't know you well enough, Right. And there's so much distance. And if you do accept the proposal and he does have to move here, if he can't kind of get with it here and wants to go back in a year, two, three years, four years, what happens to you and your life here? Is he going to say, you're my wife. You have to come back with me because I can't make a living here or I can't, I'm not happy. Then they escape, friend. Yeah. Mm. The big red flag with that comment, you know, are you working with men? It's okay for someone to feel that way, to feel jealous. That's not the problem, but the vocalization of it is controlling for you. You're going to be walking through life worried that every night be like, no, like he doesn't like me. He wasn't doing that. That's a lot. You know, that's a big emotional caretaking situation that you would have to be in. Part of it is also projecting because if I was really emotionally involved with someone, if I wanted to spend time with someone else, I would not do this. I would not keep him on side and be like, okay, I'm just going to like hang out and have fun with that, this other people. That's what I was scared about when he said that I was like, okay, like, oh, are you projecting? Like, why are you saying that you know me well enough to know that I'm the unapproachable one? Okay. <laughs> no one, no one ever talks to me like that. And yes, it, it threw me off a lot. I was like, okay, then you're not going to let me build a career. Like, I don't know. He is projecting, right? He's the one that has fibbed and lied and hasn't been 100% honest. So he's projecting on you. And if he were here watching you, observing you, he would probably see that you've literally shut yourself off. He'd be freaked out. Yeah, exactly. He would be. He'd be like, shit, she's fucking hot. You are so hot. She's like happy. Yeah. She's excited. Yeah. God, oh, I'm yeah. a loser. <laughs> and he'll be like, I need you. I need yeah. you so much. You don't understand. You're the love of my life. Yep. <laughs> don't listen to it, Anna. I am being really harsh on him. It's just I feel like I recognize so many elements of this. I think she needs to see, I mean, I know it sounds crazy and horrible, but I think she needs to see what life is like with other guys because that's how you develop your patterns and your needs and your wants and your deal breakers is that you get to explore and experiment. The 20s are exploration and they're the exploration time of ourselves. And you can't do that by being with one person since you were super young, especially if you move to another country. And that doesn't mean have sex with other people, but go out, have coffee, have a dinner, have a lunch, like meet people, connect with coworkers. You need the exposure to develop yourself. I want you to have a relationship where you can have long, meaningful conversations, a road trip relationship. You know, I want you to be able to drive to Texas 
and talk to each other the whole time. If you met when you were 19 and he was 21, you probably talked a lot then. You knew each other. You had a lot more in common. Now it's like you guys are two different people. You've had such different experiences and you kind of put your life on hold a little bit for him when you were in Europe and only going to school and not really having a ton of life experiences because you sort of found security in what you thought the future would be. And I think that's shifting for you. And I think it's awesome. Scary. <laughs> I know. I know it's scary. It's so easy for me to be like, just break up with him. <laughs> <laughs> Easy for you to say. Okay, we like to ask this too, Anna. What do you want to do? Like, how can we support you and help you visualize and strategize? Do you want him to move to America? I don't know if I'm ready for that responsibility. I'm not 100% sure. I remember when I moved here, it took me like a good couple of years to adjust, to understand that, okay, like I cannot work and go to school for 11 months and leave only one month when I go back home. That's not possible. I was extremely depressed. I was not like myself. So I'm not sure if he can handle it. So that's what kind of scares me also. Uh, what I want, I I want to live my life. <laughs> Did you hear that exhale, Ona? Yeah, I know. <laughs> She's like, I want to live my life. <laughs> when you said that you guys had a Ross and Rachel break, what I've noticed in relationships, it's like there's a half-life in between breakups. Like a relationship that is dying, the pattern tends to be fighting, 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 something dramatic. There's a big dramatic breakup. Then like three weeks later or maybe even a week later, there's a lot of missing that person in mourning. And so you get back together. You decide to make it work again. And then you're together for like half of the original amount of time. And then you break up again. Then you get back together again for half of that time. <laughs> and I feel like that seems like the pattern that you're kind of in. And is your gut reaction if April and I were like, you have to break up with him this evening? How would you feel? I would feel very sad because it's it's my main thing. I think I did a lot of self-reflection and like uh, all my friends are saying that this is like a quarter life crisis. They're saying that it's not only him. It's like the deeper root issues that I want to like. I went and I got a tattoo that I was dreaming about for 10 years. So they're you're definitely getting a quarter life crisis. You are like over accounting. You want to go back to marketing. They're like, you're all over the place. You want to move out to have your own house and this and that. And that's definitely sounds like I want to live my life, but I'm just scared that as soon as I do that, I'm not going to be willing to put as much effort and energy because I put a lot of effort and energy in this relationships to another relationships. I, I'll be like, if it works out, perfect, great. I'm going to be very grateful and I'm going to be very happy with that person. But shifting and changing as much as I shifted and changed myself for him, I don't think I can do it ever again. Well, maybe the next person in your life will be able to do nice things for you. Maybe you won't have to feel like you're giving so much of yourself. And it could be a great time to be single for a minute. I wish I had been more single in my 20s. I think I kind of missed out on some things. I moved in with my boyfriend like four months after we met and then we got married and we were just too young. We were just idiots. It was like we were playing being married. I look back on that and I'm like, that was like a production or something. Like we were just playing roles and not very well at all. <laughs> so 
that's kind of where I'm coming from. And I think the reason why I can so breezily say to you, I think that you should break up with him is because it feels to me from kind of your energy that you have been kind of breaking up with him for a long time in your head. I'm trying to get him break up with me. You can. We can show you how to do that. (laughs) Okay. Well, first and foremost, the reason why you shifted and had to work so hard at becoming what he wanted was partly due to personality types and also the age that you both were when you met. When you hit an older age, we don't do that, or hopefully we don't. So that was part of just growth, right? If you stay in something like that, where you're having to acquiesce and shift and bend yourself into a pretzel to be with somebody, you'll never really learn who you really are. It's when you meet somebody that arrives in your life and it's like, hey, we're all going to keep growing, but we're not going to change for the other person because we know ourselves really, really well. So your work right now is to sit down and ask yourself what it is that you want, what are your goals, what are the dreams, and then express that to him, which is, I feel like I have grown exponentially since I have been here. And I know how hard it was for me when I first arrived. And I don't want that responsibility to have you be here and you now all of a sudden change to be here. It's too much pressure on me and our relationship. And I'm also feeling the pressure of a pending engagement and marriage. I now need to figure out who I am. So I may not be the best person for you to propose to because I really want to spend time getting to know me as a single person making my own choices and decisions and not being responsible for anyone. Well, I told him about the responsibilities and how I feel about him coming and how I was depressed. I'm like, listen, you've seen what I went through. It's a lot. I feel a lot of pressure from the idea of you coming here. And he said that I do not have to worry about it and he's going to handle it because he's the man. And I was like, that kind of pushed me even further away from him. I'm like, okay, you don't understand. Yeah, because he wasn't listening. I don't even know what he's talking about. Only I can solve the problems. I'm the man. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what's also interesting, Anna, is that when you said that you put a lot of yourself and you put six years of yourself into this relationship, like kind of nurturing it and hanging in there, I just imagine how you maybe feel at 35. I think that mindset could be reframed. I don't think you need to look at relationships as you needing to over-nurture them, it should feel good, you know? Sounds to me like you're going to have to be more direct. That I feel too guilty and I don't want you to go through a hard time is just activating the masculine side of him of like, I can handle this, I'm the man. What you need to say is, I truly believe that I need to be single for right now because I'm not running toward you. I'm not running toward engagement. I was, and I'm sorry about that. I got a little excited. However, since then, I've really given this some thought, and I won't be the best partner for you because I'm not over the moon about this pending proposal and getting married and having you come here. So I'm not the right partner for you at this time. You're going to have to be very, very direct and very strong in how you speak with him. And to be honest with you, I don't think you need to go and spend a month, right? You were thinking about earlier. I don't think you need to go and spend a month there because he will propose and he will pressure you. And you might even cave when you go. Can you stay here? Yes, I can. I can. 
I can change my tickets and go to Italy. All that I care. <laughs> can you hear like every time we say like, hey, this is your future, like she gets super excited. Yeah. Like she starts glowing and you've got this beautiful smile on her face. I think that's why it's easy to be able to tell you these kind of harsh things that essentially this relationship, it's not suitable for your life right now. And I think your parents and family and friends, I'm sure they've noticed your independence. You feel like excited about living in Los Angeles and living life. Would that be your gut, Anna, that your parents are would be like, yeah, it was starting to not seem right? I would say my father is going to be extremely happy about that. <laughs> yeah, my mom, she will be understanding. Anna, one last thing. You don't have to break up with him immediately. <laughs> we always do that. We're like, we give you all this stuff, and then we're like, but don't do it today. Don't well, cut your nose off despite your face. <laughs> I'm working on the assumption that you may take our blunt, blunt, harsh advice, which is to break up with him. But I do think it would be, it would be interesting for you to start to view life as a single person. Like when you go out to get coffee, when you're out with your friends, keep your eyes open. Imagine being single. You know what I mean? And imagine like, oh, okay, I could be open to these other experiences because then maybe you can kind of let go of the security blanket of this relationship you know, gently if you don't feel like calling him tonight. But she has to do something, though, Anna, because this isn't just another 30 days that she's been doing every year to go there. Anna, are you going to miss not going if you decide to not go? I just like thinking that I should go and do it face to face, but I don't know if I have the gut feeling of doing it face to face. I think face to face is overrated. <laughs> I really do. Especially if you know that you can maybe be easily pushed, you know? I know I can. No one is going to say, oh, my God, she broke up with him over Zoom. <laughs> you know, nobody's going to say that. And if they do, fuck them. And they should be living their own lives. <laughs> I really love this conversation. I'm excited for you. I don't know. I could see a world opening up for you that's filled with a lot. Anna, does this help at all? Did we freak you out? No. Again, I think everything you said is something I had at the back of my mind. You know, you're subconsciously thinking about it and everything. So it did not break my heart at all. If anything, it just gave me a little bit more confidence. And I don't think I'm going to drag it to the point when I go back. I'll just try my best doing it over the phone. I really would. It's easier and it's fine. It is so fine. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that, Anna. Thank you very much, April. You're welcome. I know you have some amazing experiences in store for you. Thank you. I really appreciate your time, guys. It was nice chat. Thank you, Anna. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye, Anna. Bye. Bye. Bye.